Welcome to The Upload. I'm Allison Bektesh. Thanks for tuning in. This week... Just hearing the sheer numbers, you know, seven tables being lost and how much that can truly affect his bottom line. And not only him, but the server that waits on them. A weekend snow dump hints at how business will look this winter. A new COVID-19 test site is in the works in the Mid-Valley. Elections are one week away. And a lottery for 11 new affordable rentals will be held this week. 270 hopefuls have entered their name. That and more coming up on The Upload. Welcome to The Upload. I'm Allison Bektesh. In order to fill us in on all that has happened over the last week, I'm joined by our editor, Megan Tackett. Hi, Megan. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. We are also this week joined by our newest reporter, Matthew Bennett. Welcome to the team, and thanks for joining me on The Upload, Matthew. Hey, Allison. Hey, Megan. So great to be here. Thank you all. Well, let's talk about the uh, most recent thing to affect the entire valley, which was that yesterday between about 9.30 and 1.30 or 2, 21,000 people were without power. This is, of course, due to our um, almost surprise foot of snow, and every meteorologist is going to get mad at me right off the top of the bat here because it was forecasted, I think, that we were going to get this huge hit. But I didn't believe it. I didn't believe you could go from no snow to feet of snow in the middle of October so quickly. So it was not a fun day for a lot of people. So that gave us uh, a clue of, of what was to come. Of course, winter's on the way. Every single restaurant's chairs, outdoor restaurant's chairs, were covered in snow. And this was the perfect example that goes with the story you did, Matt, um, about what restaurants are going to do once they already are at 50% capacity, right? But now it's going to be 50% of their interior capacity. What was some of the stuff you learned, especially how that's going to hit the Mid-Valley come this winter? Sure. It was uh, really enlightening. I had the pleasure of talking to um, Javier Huerta, who owns Two Rivers Cafe. And, you know, one of the things I wouldn't have expected, but he <laughs> was really concerned about um, just how much his heating bill would be, especially if he were to enclose that patio area out front. And just hearing the sheer numbers of the tables of, you know, seven tables being lost and how much that can truly affect his bottom line and not only him, but the server that waits on them. Um, you know, it's, I think there's a lot of questions uh, heading into the winter, but, you know, all indications say how resilient this restaurant uh, community is. And I, I think there's no reason not to think that won't be the case this winter. Megan, you also got the insight to what if some of our business community is saying and thinking about the winter through uh, Open Acra meeting this morning. Um, how are chambers preparing and, and what do you think winter will be like for our businesses now that we really have a taste of it? Yeah, so this morning, ACRA, the Aspen Resort Chamber Association, hosted a Zoom meeting, uh, it went about two hours, and it really had a lot of the major stakeholders um, talking about what is our winter going to look like? And I don't necessarily think there was a lot of new news per se um, for those of us who are in the business or for any just diehard news hound that follows every headline. I think you would have recalled reporting on just about every major bullet point brought up, but it was nice to have that comprehensive presentation from RAFTA, from the airport, from SkiCo, from some uh, a, a think tank that has uh, done some research, survey-based primary research on what are active skiers and snowboarders considering acceptable um, uh, revamps of their season, as it were, versus hmm. what are 
things that they just really wouldn't be down with. Um, just kind of gauging what our market looks like heading into the winter season. And I suppose that makes a lot of sense coming from the chamber association, of course, that it was very business centric. I was really surprised the one party that wasn't at the table in my mind was um, public health. There was no conversation about what is a testing strategy going to look like in the winter? You know, what, how, what, what does the contact tracing efforts look like? What are we anticipating? Because of course we can speak all day long about hoping to get up to 75% capacity on rafter rides, for instance, that are under 15 minutes, which of course would really help with the flow of traffic on ski shuttles. Um, but if we have major outbreaks, none of those plans make they, they don't mean anything, right? Best laid plans. So I was a little surprised that there wasn't any conversation about that. Um, but there was a lot of conversation about, you know, Mike Kaplan, CEO of SkiCo, telling everybody dress differently, add an extra layer than what you normally would um, as you're on the mountain, because you're going to be spending more time outside. You know, if you're one of the ski bunnies that is up there to see and be seen and do two runs and then hang out and put your feet up by the fire, you're not gonna have access to that seat really, you know? Um, so while we are avoiding for right now a reservation system on the mountain, um, online and in advance reservations are still highly encouraged for any kind of rentals that you may need for equipment, even uh, utilizing apps and things to order your lunches in a grab and go capacity and then sit outdoors in a heated area is highly encouraged. Mike had said that Skiko had lost more than 50% of their seating capacity uh, in terms of indoor on mountain restaurants. They have acquired five tents and they hope that the outdoor seating, obviously, which will come with heaters and all that good stuff. They're hoping that maybe, hopefully, that the outdoor tents will make up for about a third of that lost capacity. And that's pretty dire, right? So there's gonna be different flows of on mountain traffic. And, and there's a lot of encouragement right now to ski or dine in the off hours um, to try and maintain the social distancing. Because one of the things that skiers and snowboarders in that survey said that they were not comfortable with, they're okay with having to make reservations for food. They're okay with having to make reservations for rental equipment. They really don't want to have to make reservations for their gondola rides, right? And so unlike Vail Resorts and some of the other big names in the industry, Skiko so far avoided a reservation system for on-mountain access. And that's amazing. I'm a big fan of that. Um, but they that doesn't mean that they're not still fine-tuning and tweaking what their reservation system would look like should, again, the COVID numbers create such a state statewide mandate that they don't have a choice. Um, so there was a lot of emphasis on, we're not done with this yet. We may be over it, but COVID-19 is far from over us. And if you want any semblance of a normal-ish winter, um, keep wearing your masks, keep social distancing. You know, uh, social gatherings are capped at 10 people in an unofficial capacity. Opera is not gonna look like the opera of years past, right? You know, at the Aspen City Council meeting last night, I was also thrown off by how much they weren't talking about public health measures when they were talking about winter vitality. So they're going to create, they're going to build these platforms that are about three parking spots long, um, one over by the park that's near White House and Bears Den, that's going to take up actual parking spaces. And then one um, over behind the, the Chamber's info kiosk, that's actually just going to be on the mall. It's not going to take up parking spots. And it's kind of like, what I would call a party deck, you know, it's going to be an elevated platform, there's going to be seating, and there's going to be heaters. 
the idea being that this is a way the city can help restaurants or um, retail where if, if they're at their maximum capacity and someone wants to wait to be the next one in line and they have one of those buzzer systems or something, there's a warm place for the visitors to wait and then be called into their table or called in for their time to shop for ski pans. But it's completely ignore the fact, like you said, we have a new statewide mandate, 10 people max for gatherings. And that's really only supposed to be two households total. And I think this is for your own house parties, but it just, why would COVID decide not to mingle among strangers hanging out at a warming deck and only mingle among strangers at a house party? I mean, that's, that's illogical. And so I didn't understand why we would be building these central hangout spots in a land where we want everyone to be distant. Right. That was what was going through my mind too, Allison. Like, you know, Kaplan mentioned a statistic that um, I have heard from more than just him, although I haven't formally fact-checked this, uh, that about what they're noticing in contact tracing trends, basically 20% of people are responsible for spreading about 80% of cases because of the habits of the 20% of people who are going to these super spreader events, right? So when talking about Opre, obviously Opre <laughs> would be considered a super spreader event. You know, your Halloween house party that you absolutely should not be having right now would be considered <laughs> a super spreader event. And so I wonder though, you know, when, when you talk about, I imagine restaurant wait lists, they can be upwards of half an hour, 45 minutes, in you know winters without COVID-19. So are we inviting people to hang out on these decks with the best laid plans and the best intentions for half an hour, 40 minutes at a time, huddled around, you know, a few sources of, of heat? I, I'm wondering if if that's a little counterproductive. Matthew, another thing Megan um, discussed not hearing about from the business community is testing. It sounds like some of the coverage you've done, both listening to uh, the Picking County Board of County Commissioners and um, learning about perhaps a new testing site coming online. You you have, uh, what are we looking at as far as testing? Is that going to be part of our protocol moving forward? Absolutely. You know, um, it's, it's a little disheartening, frankly, to hear how little testing was talked about at the meetings y'all referenced earlier because um, it's like having peanut butter and jelly sandwich without peanut butter. It's just, <laughs> I don't know how to say it any uh, more candidly, but um, yeah, the basalt, they're gonna see a new testing center, hopefully open the day after election day. Um, it'll be a drive-through testing center. And one of the big plugs was you don't have to have a doctor's referral mm. in order to utilize it, which um, whether perceived or not, that, that, that was really, holding people back from getting tested. It seemed um, as far as the doctors were saying. And the nice thing here is you just go online, you and it's for symptomatic people or people who might not be experiencing symptoms, but do have that known exposure. And, you know, again, the idea is just more testing can lead to more contact tracing. And then speaking to contact tracing, the county um, recently did this ordinance that um, it'll basically, you know, beef up that, that department where they brought on the COVID response to 12 additional people. So they're looking at bringing on somebody that'll help facilitate vaccine distribution um, when one is available. And then also just to help with contact tracing. And they, again, just, um, they really, at least back then, were doubling down on just the importance of it. But again, um, I know in executive session, I believe they were meeting about ways to acquire possible third party um, testing. So I think there may be bigger conversations that are happening 
behind closed doors, but I, I don't see why those can't be more public. Matt, my jaw was on the floor when you texted me because I remember, memory serves, wasn't that your first health board meeting you were covering? I believe it was, yeah. And it yeah. was just, uh, it was a very long executive session and I'm not in any way say insinuating that it was not right. It was just, it, they had mentioned testing um, from I believe 30 parts, third party sources on it. And it was just, it was a long conversation, um, you know, for- I, I'm not insinuating that it wasn't right, but I will say, for certain as the person who was covering those health board meetings before you, um, that was the first executive session that has ever occurred in a Picking County Board of Health meeting. And really? uh, yeah, and I will say, you know, the testing conversation is a really contentious one. It's a very emotional one for obvious reasons. Um, I do think that while not many people in any capacity, official or in the public, are completely satisfied with how the testing strategy has rolled out in Picking County, particularly early in the early days, but even since. Um, I, I do think that people in those decision-making capacities really are trying the best they can with what they have. And the pandemic has invited a lot more public scrutiny than the health board meeting, for instance, I know has ever experienced. Um, and there has been some public outcry. And I know that some of our reporting has put some pressure for like, has been the conduit of pressure between the public and the health board. And um, I, I've gotten comments before uh, from, from Marky Butler, for instance, the chair of the health board one day, uh, I had written an article talking about some displeasure in the community about testing. And she made a comment during the health board meeting, which happens in any meeting. I'm not calling her out in particular whenever whenever public officials are in a tight spot, but she did acknowledge to the health board meetings, oh, trust me, this will be on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper. I know who's on this call. And I find it very interesting that now that they're like, they then when they're in their next meeting after that, they're having an extended executive session talking about testing strategy, which is the lightning rod issue in those health board meetings as far as public concerns are going. So I just thought, my, like I said, I was pretty astonished when you texted and told me, hey, there's an executive session talking about testing in that health board meeting. Well, governments are really limited in their reasoning for going into executive session, right? They need to be getting legal advice. They need to be talking about personnel issues or, uh, perhaps a contract, you know, that's what my mind would go to. Maybe they ha do have all these different options and are trying to get into some sort of negotiation with some, some provider. And you hate to do that in public and then have someone else underbid or, you know, there's all these things where governments need to do this secret secretly for prudent reasons for public funds. Right. So they're discussing, um, are we looking for symptomatic testing to say, if you have COVID right now, are we looking for antibody testing? What, what threshold are, does it need to be at for us to say, you know, you're only accurate 80% of the time, that's good enough for picking county. We want the testing, bring it in. Then if we know it's only accurate 80% of the time, what are we going to use our public policy? How are we going to use that data for our public policy? I mean, they are weighing so many issues because there's no perfect test out there. Um, I'm sure they're expensive. And the biggest problem we've seen with the ones we've selected so far is how much we've had to roll them back because they're not reliable. And so you oh, can't sorry. make public policy on that. You can't um, tell people to like, you know, restrict their actions on a 50 50 chance. Uh, I still don't, I, I don't know that that merits a, a private discussion. I do think that's fascinating. I'm glad you guys both pointed that out that our health board is now going into executive sessions. 
Right. Well, and Allison, to your point, I think that, you know, it is sort of an example of lessons learned. Remember the A2 testing with the antibodies where, you know, Pickett County had acquired a thousand of them and they actually weren't that expensive, right? They were 50 bucks and change per test, but that still meant more than $50,000 of public monies allocated for these tests. That was a big deal. They had done everything right. They were excited about this. They got at the top of the list. And then we realized, oh, wait, the early use authorization from the FDA that they had touted wasn't for actual use. It was just for distribution and they hadn't actually been validated. Oh yet. Why is that even a category? Why is that even a category? Exactly. So when we talk about these communication hurdles, believe you and me, they are real hurdles. I have a lot of compassion for the people who are in the decision-making capacity. I do. It's just, it's tough for everybody. And, um, and, but, but I am, I'm surprised because like you, like you said, I would expect that Allison, you have a lot more experience and, and now Matt too, you with executive sessions, with council coverage and things of that nature, I had just never seen or heard of one for a health board meeting before. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. And you were talking about um, Mayor Marky Butler earlier and after the executive session, I believe when she was presented with a lot of the data, um, if memory serves me right, her exact quote was just yikes. So um, they, they do need to be talking about this. And I think the more publicly they can do that, the better, frankly. Um, but, you know, as Allison points out, too, you make a great point. Um, there's clearly not enough tests. So maybe it does come down to bidding. Maybe it does come down to a, a specific reason that is justified in executive sessions. But when they're not talking about it in public and then they are talking about it in an executive session, at some point you need to bring it forward. So what do you mean she said yikes about some of our rising COVID cases? I believe it was that I, I wish I, I wanted to use it in the story, but I, <laughs> I didn't have my recorder and I was too nervous that, but I, I do believe it was just about the rising cases in general. And um, yeah, it was ski season right around the corner and so many unanswered questions. Megan, I'm going to switch to the school district because it intersects with so many other issues that we've discussed. Of course, uh, first day of in-person classes for the older kiddos were supposed to be yesterday. It was your standard snow day, surprise feet of snow, except for snow days don't exist anymore because we know you all can uh, learn from home. We've forced you to do it for six months now, right? Um, and, and the teachers and the administration and the parents are all still having conversations and worries about the spread of COVID-19. It's not gone. I don't, I don't even know why we're pushing for the in-person learning as cases are rising. You know, I got some, I actually got some insight from David Bow, the uh, superintendent of the district on exactly that question, really pretty directly for the first time last Saturday. Um, he had texted me and just invited like, Hey, you know, before we got in a foot of snow, of course he had said, you know, the kiddos are coming back into the classrooms on Monday. Would you be interested in a tour of the campus? I'd love to show you some mm. of these classrooms and what we've done to really set it up at, uh, for success. And I thought, yeah, that's very interesting. And of course I'll take you up on that. Um, especially since, as you rightly pointed out, there is a lot of emotion. Again, everything in, in COVID land, it, there's, there's this undercurrent of emotionality. Um, there's a lot of emotion around reopening Aspen schools. And so I think David was really wanting me to see from a reporter's perspective firsthand, these are how the classrooms are set up. Um, and, and they really were set up 
at the teacher's discretion. So it wasn't a one size fits all by any stretch mm. of the imagination. You saw some teachers that had set up, you know, tables of four, but with like plexiglass, you know, separating quadrants. And so students would be separated, but also have the plexiglass. You know, you had some that were more what you would expect of just tables separated and desks separated by at least six feet. You know, you had air scrubbers in every classroom and there's outdoor spaces and, and, and. But when asked directly, how are teachers feeling and how are, how are, what, you know, what's the, what's the temperature read on, on the emotional well-being going into this, David was pretty forthcoming about teachers are nervous. A lot of them have not come back online as restrictions have been lifted. They really have been truly quarantining, but he is anticipating further spikes and another yeah. wave of COVID-19. So from this administration's perspective, they really view this window of post-fall break, but before the like, like, you know, Christmas, New Year, winter season as potentially one of the only windows for potentially several months even mm. that students can get in a classroom together with their teachers and get some of that like, you know, emotional, social bonding with their teachers in an in-person capacity. And so he's actually completely braced for another shutdown and finds that, you know, in his assessment based off of, you know, all of the different consultants that he's, he's listening to in this, that even if they only get a couple of weeks in the classroom on campus together, the amount of bonding and rapport building that can happen in those weeks is worth it. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't actually heard that thinking spoken aloud in the you know much more highly politicized school board meetings that have been happening happening as of late. I love the irony of the entire workforce has just stopped uh, being in the office and left their cubicle. And now we're putting kids into cubicles. <laughs> the first time. Right? And also well, to your earlier point, it can, can we just take a moment? My heart broke when I thought realized snow day, day. I, the casualty of 2020. Like there's just such an innocence of childhood that I just feel was robbed in that. It just seems so wrong. Matthew, I guess you, growing up in Louisiana, I don't know how many snow days you got um, as a kid, but yeah, I think that is absolutely child, you know, like you, you deserve that. It is tradition. However, I will say for all the locals who are just doing the Monday through Friday, the, the busiest place you could possibly be is on the mountain on a snow day. Cause every single kid will leave their house and go directly to the mountain. So at least it helps uh, the locals who want their lunch laps, um, you know, bomb, bomber free, <laughs> uh this year as we're trying to keep it distance anyway so whoever the author of 2020 is is like a drama freak because not only are we in the middle of a pandemic it happens to be a huge election year one or the other would have been the, the main news story of course um we are today's tuesday so we're one week away from an election we've talked about i think for four years uh let's let's focus on the local candidates that we're seeing um instead of the national which i'm sure people can find in every other podcast between now and Tuesday. Megan, you were a moderator for multiple debates. So we had county commissioners and, and Snowmass Council and mayor all up this, this fall. I, I kind of broadly, without you, not necessarily naming names, but just your assessment of the candidates we're seeing, how much has the pandemic and national politics played into people's either uh, choice to run or positions that they're taking? Like, what is what does our local election climate look like? I'm sorry, I blacked out in a panic attack when you said one week until the elections. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, no, that's a good question. Uh, my general takeaway, and this is more sunshine and rainbows than I typically offer in 2020, is that we really don't have bad candidates. Uh, there's not, I didn't come away from any of those forums thinking, you know, oh, somebody is objectively a bad candidate or they're running in bad faith or, or you know, their, their whole platform is really ego service, uh, which you can see a lot, honestly, um, in a lot of particularly local elections, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, no, we have very authentic candidates across the board, no matter what you're talking about. I don't know if readers have noticed, uh, we've actually rolled out in our endorsements. We actually rolled out our statewide endorsements. Um, you know, we, we endorsed uh, John Hickenlooper for Senate in today's paper. And in yesterday's paper, we came out with Diane Mitchbush's endorsement. Um, and some of that is because the local candidates, you know, it, it actually required, there was more there was there are ties to be broken, you know. There there's more to actually talk about um, than there were with the statewide. You know, we interviewed statewide candidates, and there was pretty unanimous consensus. Versus with the local, uh, it, it it is a little harder because it's a more nuanced perspective. Um, what I don't see so much is Democrat Republican. Um, candidates. You know, when you get down to the local elections, you really, really are talking much more about regional cultures. And yes, even in our Roaring Fork Valley, there are regional cultures to consider. When we were interviewing Francie Jacober and Jeff Evans, for instance, um, for their for their district, that would include the Crystal River Valley, right? And um, I believe David Krause, the editor of the Aspen Times, who was my co-moderator, he described it as the other Pitkin County, right? <laughs> and it's so easy when we're talking about county commissioner coverage and, and those conversations and we think of Pitkin County, Redstone isn't really top of mind, right? Um, and so that was a big question. We were talking, when we were talking to those two candidates, the first question we asked was, you know, what are your thoughts on the proposed Carbondale to Crested Butte Trail that goes through that valley? Because that is the hot issue in that area versus I know a lot of people who live in downtown Aspen that are only vaguely aware, if at all, that that's a project that's happening. Um, and so, you know, just kind of gauging, getting, getting candidates fingers on the pulse of the various uh the various constituencies that they would be representing and how do we acknowledge these you know kind of micro climates of culture and concerns and then also how do we bridge those into the broader umbrella in their in their approach to leadership for the county those were really interesting conversations and again i'm avoiding naming names right now but um, there and, and of course, housing, which I know you're very well versed in, Allison, housing. Anytime you start talking about upper, the upper valley and, and the closer to the roundabout you get, the more intensified the opinions become about affordable <laughs> housing, as well as the airport, right? Um, and so those were kind of the big topic issues uh, that were presented from the county level of just balancing this idea of development, right? How do we do it intelligently? How do we do it in a way that's sustainable? Um, everybody acknowledged the uh, the juxtaposition of the sense of urgency in terms of the airport conversations, especially as we do have some FAA grant money that is contingent on some timetables of moving the conversation forward in a timely manner. Uh, but at the same time, no dirt will be broken 
on that project for a decade, right? right. <laughs> Maybe eight years. So that was an interesting conversation. Um, yeah, that's, that's my feedback on the county. It was very similar when it came to the snow mass conversations. Council members, all the those vying for council seats and, and even the mayoral candidates, there was awful, it was almost tough to call it squirm in good mm -hmm. faith because far from squirming when we were interviewing Tom Good and Bill Madsen for the mayoral uh, seat, you know, it was an awful lot of like, yeah, good show chap, I agree with you. <laughs> And you talk about a regional divide, perhaps. I see a really stark generational divide in our elections, too, and our representatives. And I don't actually even mean age-wise, what generation you were born into this world, as much as when your life here started, you know, that what class you are when you come here. Because um, as much as those who have been here, and many of them politicians in this valley for 30 or 40 years, think they know the Valley, it's not the same to come here in 2020 or in 2015 or in 2010 as it was in 1970. And so I think there's a lot of that, um, that just misinterpretation of what people are asking for. I think uh, when, they, when they want to quote change, the change candidates are probably asking for it to be like it was when you came here. <laughs> You know, but it's so, so not necessarily young versus old, but, you know, even someone who's coming here mid-career who can't find housing wants to know why we don't build more housing. And someone who came here early career 40 years ago and, and owns free market because that was accessible, um, thinks that more housing means you just want to build out the town I love, you know? And so there's, there's just, I think a pretty fundamental misunderstanding of which Aspen you live in or which picking County you live in. That's it. That is just um, an existential question. Who do we want to be as a community that Picking County in particular, I think is going to have to answer sooner than maybe Garco or Eagle. And one thing I'll push back on a little because I just did the census story and I'm absolutely psyched to do a decade's worth of uh, data analysis <laughs> as to who lives here. Um, I don't know that our population is growing as we lose local housing we need more local housing to house locals, but it might be less locals than we've ever had before, right? The places that they used to live that are now Airbnbs or empty second homes, you know, as housing grows, the physical buildings, I don't know that that is a one-for-one -one population growth. And I think that's confusing and odd in anywhere but a resort town um, and also leads to some of that kind of cross-speaking during the, the election years. I was fascinated by your census story. I loved, loved that story. Can you walk me through a little bit about what your thought process was? Because I think a lot of reporters, it would have been very easy to have seen, oh, you know, last day for census or whatever, and let's just do a general PSA. And that was not your response to that. You were like, wait, there's a lot of data that tells a much bigger story here. Yeah. It's, well, it helps that uh, we had this local group that was formed 18 months ago that I've been in touch with, you know, through it all. Um, and so to, to know how many people, how many locals spent time, there's 200 partners in this coalition to make sure that everyone in the Valley got counted, spent time. I, I the story wasn't like, get your, get your census in. Cause I think you either know that or you don't on the last day. Right. Um, but who did what and why, like, why would a private person like Nick Ireland hire someone to figure out how to code, uh, two different sets of maps. He has old voter maps from 2010 when he was, uh, running for, you know, he's our former mayor. Um, and so he knew how many voters were in 
these census blocks, which are kind of like uh, city blocks, but a little bit bigger. And then you have the census blocks of 2020 and you overlay them, but the blocks have changed as population has changed. But to make sure that, hey, if, if 40 people were registered to vote in these six blocks in 2010, and in 2010, you said that seven people lived here, something's off, right? Um, so he, he literally paid to have someone be able to start matching those census blocks with city blocks and voter registration rolls and find areas that were gonna be really hard. Um, at the Maroon Creek Club, for instance, there's a berm. There's an entire last row of these condos, but it's up and over a hill that you can't see if you're the person who's supposed to be walking around the neighborhood. So that entire row just wasn't counted 10 years ago. And we started oh to be gosh. able to find this very fine detail of who was left right. out, um, which was fascinating. And I knew there was lots of people like Mick who just believe in it. They believe that people count. This is a constitutional uh, mandate that we find out who lives here. And um, then we use, you know, we, we only get to do it once every 10 years and we use it for everything. We use it for federal funding. We use it for congressional districts. We use it for policy. Do we need more housing? Are we losing locals? That, that kind of thing. So I think the importance of it uh, meant a little bit more. I'm also very skeptical when someone says we did perfectly on, on a massive undertaking that, you know, we only get 10 years, we only do once every 10 years and all these, all this stuff is resting on it for the federal government to come out and say, we did it perfectly. 99.9% .9 of all Americans were counted in the census. I have, that doesn't sound right to me. So I wanted to call up the people who were really knocking on doors and who knew who would be undercounted and ask them what they thought. And, you know, we don't get a no, we just give the numbers then literally it goes to the Trump administration. He gets to look at it before he gives it to the Senate and Congress to kind of sign off and start redistricting. And, and that's it. So it's kind of, you do all this work and poof. So you only know the anecdotal evidence and anecdotally on the ground, we don't think we got 99.9%. .9%. So then if you extrapolate that to state and national, there's a little bit of questioning there. Well, and it's so, I, I just so appreciate the weight that you've given to that to that data because I don't think people realize just how important it is. I don't think, for instance, the census workers for the 2010 census thought to themselves to bring this conversation full circle, there might be a pandemic in nine <laughs> years and maybe the numbers that we're reporting on the census are going to dictate which counties become priorities for state run testing sites, et cetera, because that is absolutely something county officials are dealing with right now. Just your story last or last week too, um, Allison. I thought you say with the census how you're talking about um, it can illustrate how much housing an area needs. I mean, I thought that opening sentence where you say 270 people applied for 11 spots. I mean, goodness gracious, you know, what more do you yeah. need to even write after that? I mean, it was a great article <laughs> top to bottom, but I couldn't get over that lead <laughs> sentence. It was just, you know, I think all up and down the valley, housing is just needed and I, quite frankly i think a lot of people myself included still doesn't even know what affordable housing is because even in the private market out here it's still not affordable so and i mean it's just it's it's a really conversation that i feel like has a lot of rabbit holes and um yeah but you're reporting on that story i almost kind of wanted to know more just as far as do you think even some a lot of people didn't put their name in the ring just because they knew they didn't have a shot 
Um, partially that, you know, we are in technically off season. So if any restaurants, hotels, ski co was on furlough all of last week, um, if the people just literally aren't around and didn't know that they had that one week to get their name in. I do think it's lower because people don't know what their financial situation is going to be like going into the winter and for 2021 or they're away. Um, I definitely think that if you have 270 people looking to live in those 11 park circle apartments that are going online right now, it's not a, if you build it, they will come. It's that they will, they are here and put them somewhere kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. I, that was just so eye opening to me. And, and, you know, it's not an issue that's necessarily exclusive to Aspen. Obviously it's all up and down the Roaring Fork Valley, but I think that speaks to just the bigger conversation and, and what is affordable housing, you know, what are the good models of it and, and how do we bring more here and how do we just bring housing here in general? Um, so that was really insightful. Thank you, Matthew Bennett, Megan Tackett. Thank you both so much for joining me on the upload this week. Happy to be here. Thanks, Allison. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Upload. I'm your host and producer, Allison Bektesh. You can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Do you want to be on the show? Do you have thoughts you want to pass along? Drop me a line at upload at aspendailynews.com. Thanks to Matthew Bennett and Megan Tackett for being on the show today. This is The Upload Podcast from the Aspen Daily News. Listen, discuss, decide. <laughs>